This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Today's podcast is presented by EPRA, the European Public Real Estate Association. Facing global megatrends like green transition and aging population, how will listed real estate contribute to a sustainable future and financial security for Europe? EU Confidential will get started right after this message. This week's episode is presented by the Croatian Presidency of the Council of the EU. Timely agreement on the entire financial framework for the next seven years is our priority. In this, the MFF should meet the expectations of all our citizens in all our member states. I see a strengthened European defence cooperation not as a competition to NATO, but something that can supplement or complement. So a strengthened European pillar within NATO is a formula, in my opinion. Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor, and you just heard Anders Fogh Rasmussen, the former NATO Secretary General and Danish Prime Minister. He gave us a taste of some of the topics that are sure to come up this weekend at the Munich Security Conference, the big global powwow on defence and diplomacy. And we'll bring you a special edition of the podcast from Munich on Sunday evening. But first, we have a packed podcast today. After a very newsy last seven days across Europe, let's get into it with our podcast panel. Matt Karnichnik's in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Good evening. Annabelle Dixon's in London. Hi, Annabelle. Hello. And Reem Montaz is in Paris. Hi, Reem. Hello. Okay, so let's start with uh, Germany. Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer is stepping down as leader of the Christian Democrats after a big fandango in the state of Thuringia. The very short version is that her party, the Christian Democrats, uh, voted along with the far-right AFD, the alternative for Germany, to install a state premier, and that prompted outcry and uproar. Uh, the state premier in question from the FDP didn't last long. Kramp Karrenbauer's authority was undermined in a couple of different ways. She decided to throw in the towel, which means she won't be party leader for much longer, and she will no longer be the presumed successor to Angela Merkel as chancellor. So, Matt, where does it all go from here? Well, I think people in the party even were pretty shocked by this this turn of events on Monday. She doesn't seem to have told uh, very many people, if if anybody. So they were kind of caught wrong wrong footed by it. And and she has said she wants to remain head of the party and to kind of guide this process in the coming months. And she suggested that the next candidate for chancellor should also be party leader and that there should be a a vote on this at the next regular party convention, which isn't until December. So, uh, you know, that's quite a, a long horizon and it might be unrealistic to think that 
this question, which has already caused so much upheaval in the party, this question of who's going to lead Germany's largest political party after Merkel steps back, that they can wait almost another year to decide it. Matt, isn't it a bit unusual that she quit so quickly? I mean, she was just kind of anointed Merkel's successor, and she just seemed to kind of give up from an outsider's perspective at the first sign of resistance or or defiance. Is that normal? Uh, no, no, it's not normal. But the situation that she was in was was also not normal because in in the CDU in particular, you, you hadn't had a situation in recent memory anyway where the uh, party leader was also not the chancellor, and you know Merkel wanted to remain chancellor through the end of this term, and agreed after her own missteps and after the party lost a number of regional elections, uh, she agreed to step down as party leader and also saw it as a way to kind of guide Kramp-Karrenbauer into this role. But I, th- I think at the end of the day, it's also not too surprising if you look back over the past year where it wasn't just the gaffes, but you could see on many occasions that she just appeared to be sort of out of her depth, number one, and to not really have the strong support of the party itself. Right. I mean, I think she was um, she was elevated very, very quickly. I mean, she she was the Saarland state premier for a while. She was this Merkel seemed to kind of handpick her. Suddenly she was the CDU secretary general. She didn't do that for very long. Suddenly she's the leader of the party. Then they threw in de- the defense ministry on top of that. Right. And that was also a contradiction because originally she said she wanted to only concentrate on running the party. And then last summer when Wiesela von der Leyen stepped down as defense minister to become commission president, Graham Karrenbauer raised her hand uh, for that role. And that's one of the most difficult jobs in the German government. One of the things that amused the British audience was, I think there was a headline in the week, is, is Germany ready for a male chancellor? That seemed to be the sort of the takeaway from from this particular um <laughs> well, they're definitely going to get one now i would say that that would be my <laughs> take looking at the candidates matt do you want to give us a super quick run through of who's in the frame you know just to be provocative on this question uh you know it's i wouldn't like rule you. out that the, i wouldn't rule out that the greens win the next election especially you know with with the cdu not really showing its best side recently or that it's sort of competent to continue to run the government um but it certainly looks like in terms of the cdu candidates that um a a man will get the job and uh but overall, the the male challengers that she had uh, when she got the job, Jens Spahn, who's now health minister, and Friedrich Merz, who's an old uh, Merkel foe, are more conservative and maybe more in line with the uh, traditions of, of the CDU. Yeah, well, let's see. The other sort of main name in the frame at the moment is Armin Laschet, the uh, premier of North Rhine-Westphalia, who would be seen as a, a kind of more moderate uh, choice. but uh, And a Merkel copy. A male Merkel. A mini male, male Merkel. <laughs> Maybe that will be his, uh, his nickname. But uh, let's see. We'll see how it all plays out. Uh, good. Well, let's uh, jump ahead now to... Um, Someone else uh, who's been making news uh, over the past week, and that's the EU's foreign affairs chief, Joseph Borrell, uh, who got into trouble after saying, well, making some remarks that were not seen as terribly complimentary to young uh, climate protesters. Uh, He said at an event, the idea that young people are seriously committed to fighting climate change, we could call it the Greta syndrome. Allow me to doubt that. 
I would like to know if young people demonstrating in Berlin calling for measures against climate change are aware of what such measures will cost them and if they're willing to lower their their living standards to offer compensation to Polish miners. And he went on a bit in that vein. Uh, Annabelle, let's bring you in here because I think this highlights a dilemma in terms of how a lot of politicians are thinking about how they deal with this movement that's emerged over the past couple of years. How do politicians in, in Britain do it? How does Boris Johnson handle it? Well, it very much varies. But Boris Johnson is very keen to um, to sort of highlight his green credentials. Um, he announced a load of green crap, as um, David Cameron termed it a few crap? years ago. Just crap, singular. <laughs> just crap. It's the short just form. Crap. So what David Cameron used to talk about green crap, that was his... Um, oh, yeah, David, David Cameron used to walk around number 10 saying we need to get rid of this green crap. <laughs> I thought you were talking about an outhouse or something. Sorry. sorry. <laughs> Didn't he? Yeah. Well, maybe that's... Uh, is that his, does that involve his shed? A privy. You call it a privy. <laughs> but wasn't Cameron, you know, at the forefront of trying to kind of, you know, hug a husky and, and all of that well, kind of stuff? Well, he was publicly and then privately. But privately, he was sort of frustrated by... Um, the constraints of having to to hit these targets. Mm. Uh, Reem, what did you make of Burrell's comments? You know, this may not be very um, popular to say, but there is common sense in what he's saying. And I say this as someone who has, you know, covered France for the past year, and we've seen that at the heart of the Yellow Jackets movement and protest. At the heart of it, it is about the, you know, who is going to pay for this very important environmental transition that all of these industrialized societies have to actually carry out. Uh, And there's definitely a tension between, uh, you know, the working classes, the middle classes already feel like they pay a lot of taxes, uh, they don't really get paid very well, uh, and they completely understand and are aware of the, you know, ecological and environmental needs. But at the same time, they say that they're already very stretched thin. So I think it's, he put his hand, perhaps in a way that isn't very politically correct, on uh, a challenge that most uh, Western and European societies are going to have to deal with at one point or another. Yeah, but uh, I don't know. The thing that struck me, I have to say, was that this was at an event, uh, I think, at the European Parliament uh, last week. And uh, bearing in mind everything that Joseph Borrell has is on, on his agenda, you know, Iran, uh, Syria, the Western Balkans, Libya, the fact that he had time to opine about uh, Green climate protesters, I found quite surprising. And I do think that his general persona here at the moment uh, does seem to be that. It seems to have taken on an unofficial role, which is not in the treaties as the EU's grumpy grandpa. He seems to get quite cranky about uh, various things at various times. Yeah, but times. from a journalistic and, point of view, he's the gift that keeps on giving. Right? Yeah, well, I just wonder how much longer he can keep on giving in the, and retain his uh, current job because he does seem to... Uh, he, he certainly, yeah, he's certainly outspoken. And uh, yeah, from a journalistic point of view, we should uh, welcome that. So let's leave uh, Joseph Burrell there until he gets uh, grumpy about something else and uh, move on to the Munich Security Conference, uh, which we mentioned at the top of the programme. We'll get a bit of a foretaste of some of those topics uh, from one of our interviews to come. But Annabelle, it looks like the Brits are not going to be there at any kind of senior level or in any kind of great number. Do you have any explanation for that? Well, the the explanation from Downing Street is that Boris Johnson is clashing with Boris Johnson's weekly cabinet meeting. 
he's actually having a big reshuffle this week. So by the time this goes out, um, there should be a new look cabinet in place. I do think this is a miscalculation and, and seems to be kind of part of a trend of not putting these big international conventions sort of top of the list. Yeah, it's a strange one when uh, Britain, you know, was kind of has always made big play of saying we're leaving the European Union, but we're still committed to Europe's uh, security. Um, so this is a this would have been the showcase for it. And in terms of diary clash, I mean, the event goes on for three days. It starts on Friday, it goes on till Sunday lunchtime. So unless he's planning a kind of three day cabinet meeting, uh, I would have thought he or somebody else senior could have made it. Uh, Reem, did you want to jump in? On the French side, uh, this is Macron's first time at the uh, Munich Security Conference. And actually, the Elysee told us today uh, that the last French president to have gone was Sarkozy in 2009. So it's been 11 years since there's been a French president at the MSC. Obviously, they're expecting uh, Macron to take a lot of questions on his uh, many headline-grabbing initiatives over the past few uh, months. Um, and so they're expecting it to be, uh, you know, a good time and a good place to do more, as they call it, explaining uh, in order to uh, reassure more and more his partners who seem to have been quite spooked by, by his latest interviews and speeches on the matters. Okay, Matt, what are you expecting from Munich? Well, what, one thing that's interesting in all of this is that Angela Merkel won't be there, which um, is, you know, particularly ironic given that this is the first time Macron is gone and that the two of them haven't really. They just can't seem to quite kind of eye to eye recently on yeah, a lot. Of their timing is always off. Yeah, it's a. Uh... It's a strange one. Funnily enough, actually, maybe this is a note on which to end to go back to the beginning. I uh, got in contact with uh, Annegret Karnbauer's team a few days ago, uh, last week, end of last week, to ask if we might have an interview at the Munich Security Conference. And the, actual, and the answer came back uh, very quickly that she would not be available. So maybe that was a, a sign of things to come. Uh, we'll leave it there. Matt, Reem, Annabelle, thanks very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. Bye. And before we get to our feature interviews with Anders Fo Rasmussen and the new president of the EU's Committee of the Regions, we have a quick message from this week's sponsor. A message from the Croatian Presidency of the Council of the EU. Timely agreement on the entire financial framework for the next seven years is our priority. In this, the MFF should meet the expectations of all our citizens in all our member states. So it must continue to finance cohesion and agricultural policies, but also be able to address many new challenges the European Union is facing. It must ensure our togetherness and unity, while respecting all of our differences, economic, social and demographic. It must also make Europe more effective and visible on the global stage. To achieve this, we must act fast. We cannot allow delays in the implementation of our EU programmes as of 2021. Otherwise, we would be disappointing our citizens. Together with the President of the European Council, who is continuing the MFF talks at the highest political level, we will spare no effort to achieve a breakthrough during our presidency. And now, our producer Christina Gonzalez caught up with Anders Fogh Rasmussen, the former Danish Prime Minister and Secretary General of NATO. The two met in a bustling hotel lobby on the sidelines of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland a few weeks ago. And Christina starts off by asking the former Secretary General about comments made during the forum by European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. 
Europe also needs credible military capabilities, and we have set up the building blocks of a European Defence Union. It is complementary to NATO, and it is different. There is a European way to foreign policy and foreign security policy, where hot power is an important tool, without any question, but it is never the only one. Now let's pick up with Rasmussen's reaction and highlights from the rest of their conversation. As former Secretary General of NATO, how does this statement strike you? I fully agree. Uh, She's right uh, that uh, we need to give the EU stronger capabilities uh, to actively pursue European goals and uh, European values. And if you do not have a military strength, then people will not listen to you. It is as simple as that. But having said that, all speak about a European defense is to think about a paper tiger uh, in the short run. Because uh, after Brexit, 80% of all NATO's defense investments will take place outside the European Union. So, in conclusion, I am fully in favor of a strengthened European defense cooperation. But for many, many years, NATO will remain the cornerstone of European security. And when the European Union says hard power, what does that mean to you? It means, among other things, troops on the ground. And in that respect, the Europeans have been much too hesitant during recent years. And one example is Syria. If Uh, European countries in due time had accepted to send uh, NATO troops to Syria, we could have avoided the mess in Syria, we could have avoided the unilateral uh, Turkish invasion of Syria. So Europe pays the price for its own lack of will and capability to engage in the Middle East. And what do you think it will take? Do you think now it is at a tipping point and that things will change? Or is this just more talk and rhetoric? Well, I think Ursula von Leyen has come off to a good start. So you have to start somewhere. What I'm saying is that the end goal is in the far distance. But you have to start. And I fully agree to build elements of a European Defence Union. I fully agree to um, allocate more funds uh, for the European Defence Fund, etc., etc. I'm fully in favour of all efforts to increase European investments in defence and to strengthen European defence cooperation. Would all NATO allies agree with that? I don't know, but uh, I see a strengthened European defence cooperation not as a competition to NATO, but something that can supplement or complement what is already done uh, within uh, NATO. So a strengthened European pillar within NATO is a formula, in my opinion. I'd like to focus specifically on what seems to be an artificial intelligence race between the U.S. and China. Should the U.S. be worried about Chinese AI advancements? 
Yeah, absolutely. And you are quite right. We will see an artificial intelligence race. And in the U.S., they are speaking about a new Manhattan project that was the project that led to the nuclear bomb or a new moon landing project. We're speaking of a challenge in in that dimension. And the the United States uh, feel committed to be the winner of that race. And I think Europe's role should be to support and cooperate, to support the U.S. and cooperate with the U.S. in that respect. Because if the Chinese and other autocrats are winning this race, then it will undermine the principles and values and standards upon which we have built our uh, free societies. Just think about um, mandatory face recognition in China. Uh, It will provide authoritarian rulers with unprecedented tools to control their own population. And that runs counter to our ideas and our visions. This is the reason why it's of utmost importance that the United States and Europe work and walk hand in hand when it comes to artificial intelligence. Is that not currently the case? No, I see worrying uh, signals from certain circles in Europe that they are more focused on creating what they call European champions uh, than they are focused on a fruitful cooperation across the Atlantic. Let's face it. To promote European champions will be to participate in a race that Europe has already lost. If the world's democracies form what I would call a technological alliance of democracies, then we can set our own standards. And it will be very, very difficult for China and Russia just to surpass or overlook those principles and standards. That was Anders Fo Rasmussen in conversation with our producer, Christina Gonzalez. Now let's look ahead to another big event looming on the political calendar, a special summit next week on the EU budget. One of the most interested parties in that budget battle is the EU's Committee of the Regions, whose members benefit from a lot of EU funding. Earlier this week, our reporter Lily Bayer caught up with the brand new president of the Committee of the Regions, Apostolos Tsitsikostas, who's also the governor of the Greek region of central Macedonia. Let's have a listen to their discussion now. First of all, not all of our listeners are familiar with the European Committee of the Regions. So I was wondering if you could introduce yourself, your region, and also explain a bit about the role of the Committee of the Regions. Yes, of course. I come from the region of Central Macedonia in Greece. It's the second largest region of Greece with two million citizens. It's a really important region because it's located in the northern part of Greece. And um, we are, I am personally a member of the Committee of the Regions for the last five years. And now, with my new function as president, I'm really hoping that I can give a totally different point of view of the Committee of the Regions from 
the point of view of the other EU institutions as well as from the member states. So do you see that as really the role of the Committee of the Regions to to bring your viewpoint from the ground to Brussels? Exactly. What we need to do, and this is my main priority at this point for the Committee of the Region, is to bring closer Europe to its citizens. Because this is uh, the major problem that Europe faces at this point. The fact that this institution seems to be far away, distant from the people. And this is exactly what radicalism is using. This is exactly what even member states are using. And uh, we saw Brexit happening a few days ago, which was definitely something that we need to take into serious consideration on what we need to change in Europe in order to make it again an institution that would be important for the people, that people would not feel forgotten or excluded from Brussels and the European Union. Uh, here in Brussels, we're in the midst of a big uh, EU budget negotiation over the multi-annual financial framework for 2021 to 2027. And a big part of that debate is cohesion funding. But some voters, especially in Western Europe, don't really know much about how this works. And I know that in, in Greece, for a lot of voters, this is a very important issue. Could you maybe walk us through why cohesion funding is significant for your region? Cohesion funding is significant because it helps EU member states to develop their infrastructure, to develop the way they function, and to make them become more modern and European in a way. What the main issue that should trouble us today is that cohesion can only be implemented through the regions and through the cities. And that's because, first, we are much closer to the people, so we know the needs that they have. Second, we know how to deal with the issues much quicker and efficiently than a central government. The third is because they trust us more, because that's the people they know better, the people they elect all the time, and the people that they can find very easily to discuss their problems. So, in my opinion, what we need to do here is, when it comes to cohesion, to involve the regional and local authorities much more in the whole process. And this doesn't only go for cohesion. This goes for all aspects of politics. We need to bring Europe closer to the citizens by using the strength that the regional and local authorities can bring to Europe and to the citizens. Do you think that countries like Greece should be getting extra funding from the new EU budget to compensate for the role that they're having in taking in asylum seekers? I think that the burden and the, the, the weight of this issue of the immigration crisis should be proportionate to all member states, EU member states. This is a European issue. It's not one, two or three countries issue. So we need to deal with that issue in a proportional way so that all the burden is divided equally according to what we can give to that issue. 
Following Brexit, there's quite a big hole in the EU's finances. And that's a, a part of why the European Commission uh, did propose in 2018 that in the future budget, um, there would be some reductions in things like cohesion policy overall, not, not for Greece necessarily. As the president of the European Committee of the Regions, what would you be advocating for as a solution? Do you think member states should step up and fill that hole? Do you think we should see cuts in different areas? How would you address the problem? I would definitely not cut money, funds from issues that affect people's lives, everyday life. For example, the funds that are allocated for the regions and for uh, the cities in Europe, are funds that are being all absorbed and that they go for public work that influence everyday people's lives. So these are important, not to be cut. There are needs for schools, there are needs for hospitals, still in many countries, there are needs for roads that will help us be a commercial superpower, and there are needs that uh, stems from the issues that citizens deal every day. So these kind of funds cannot be cut out. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for your time. That was Apostolos Tsitsikostas in conversation with Politico's Lily Bayer. And that's all we have time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to rate or review us as well. You can always send us feedback at podcast at politico.eu. Be on the lookout for a special edition of the podcast coming to you from the Munich Security Conference, which will be landing in your feed on Sunday. And next week is a special episode from that European Council Summit on the multi-year budget. In other words, there'll be lots to listen to over the next week. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to producer Christina Gonzalez and thanks to you for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.